Ready? So welcome back to Diaries of the Wild Ones. Now, before we get started, you guys are used to me doing an ad for Wild Earth Australia. This time, I really want to come from the heart and just give this company a big thank you. You guys hear it as a brand that I'm promoting, but today I really just want to spread some love to my Wild Earth family. Because to me, they've been way more than a brand. They've been a family, a family of like-minded and supportive people. People that are out there getting it done and adventuring themselves and supporting others doing it. So I feel so, so blessed to be a part of such an incredible company. So Wild Earth Australia, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so, so much for all your support. I also want to take the time to thank you, the listener. Like I had no idea when I started this podcast how far it would go. My last trip, every country I went to, people recognized me and came up and thanked me for the podcast. And it just was so beautiful and so overwhelming. It's blown me away the reach this podcast has had and how much it helps people and how much it means to people. So thank you guys, the listener, for making all this possible. Okay, so you guys know what to do. If you need any gear for your next adventure, go to wildearth.com.au and at checkout put in the 10% discount code MYDIARY. So that's one word, guys, my diary. So at checkout, wildearth.com.au and put in my diary. I also want to give a big thank you to Get Well Soon Australia, the best organic regenerative CBD oil on the market. Now, this company has been a huge inspiration to my off-grid journey, showing me the possibilities through permaculture to do things in a way that's best for the planet and our own health. So if you guys want to get hooked up with some organic CBD oil, go to getwellsoon.com.au or getwellsoonaustralia on Instagram and put in the 10% discount code WILDONES. That's all one word, capital letters, WILDONES. Okay, so if you don't already know this next guest, let me introduce Dave Rastovich. He's a pro surfer and activist, and to be honest, he has always been one of my favorite surfers and inspirations to my own life. So this was just an absolute honor to sit down and do this interview. Okay, so this episode needs a big introduction and also explanation. So just bear with me. Okay, so first of all, this episode is Dave's story of his involvement in the award-winning documentary, The Cove. Now, if you haven't seen it, it's heavy. Okay, so The Cove is a 2009 American documentary film directed by Louis Sahoyas that analyzes and questions dolphin hunting practices in Japan. It was awarded the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature in 2010. The film is a call to action to halt mass dolphin kills and captures, change Japan's fishing practices, and inform and educate the public about captivity and the increasing hazard of mercury poisoning from consuming dolphin meat. Now, if you remember in the film, Rasta and a few other surfers have a really heavy part in the film where they do a paddle out during the slaughtering of the dolphins. It's hard scenes to watch, as you can't help but be brought to tears. So this episode is Dave's story about the cove, but it's much, much more than that. Now, I owe you guys, the listener, an explanation. As I recorded this episode nearly a year ago, 
but I couldn't bring myself to release it until I really understood a few things for myself and my own journey in life. Now, I'm not sure if Rasta meant to or not, but he left me with two huge lessons that I really needed to think about and understand on a deeper level before I could share it. Okay, so just after I recorded this episode, my beautiful sister Sarah suddenly and tragically lost her life and it completely broke me. Something I never imagined I would ever have to go through. A level of pain I didn't know was possible. In this episode, Dave talks about the two worlds, the human world and the natural world. And this left me with this this question that I've pondered so deep since. What is actually real? I can relate so much to this as I feel I check out of the human world as much as possible. Living off grid on my land with the native animals, with the garden, going deep into nature, solo by myself and all these adventures just to be closer to what I feel is real. And for me, I've always thought this human world is just made up. When my sister passed, nothing mattered but the love in my heart for her. Nothing else mattered. I started questioning what is real because my love for her was certainly real and the feeling that I had in my heart for her like was always so real. Just like a hug from my mum, like that is real. When I walk through the garden and I look at the fruit trees, that is real. The feeling when I get when I sit in the forest, like that's real. The smell in the air, the sound of the birds, the beautiful connections I have with other people that are here purely just to experience the natural world. This is why we get this life. And all this other stuff, these games we have created to move together as a society, well, they're not real. Like they might be important to a functioning society, but they're not real, like doing your taxes, what car you drive, what clothes you wear, how many followers you have, going to work, money itself. These are all games that we have made up, but we can be easily so distracted to what we are here for, and that is love, like love for each other, love for ourselves, love for the natural world. So for me, what is real is the love in my heart and the connection to it and the natural world. And that's why I want to spread love and help protect nature. So thank you, Dave, for making me ponder like for months on end about this. Now, the second lesson, again, this is just what I got from it. I'm not sure if Rasta meant to give me these lessons, but God, it got deep. So along the lines of me roughly asking Dave how to be an activist, his explanation was so filled with compassion. He says this world is not a goodies versus baddies world. The world is so much more complex than that. And so the lesson I took from this was to understand other people are not wrong. We are all here for love. We are all here but have our own traumas that play out in different ways. So to come at other people and tell them that they're wrong, that it's them versus us doesn't get us anywhere. It gets us divided and playing out our own traumas. So to come at people with love and to work out ways to open up conversations, to see if there's ways that work for us all so everyone is happy. I say this on so many podcasts that we all have our part to play. We are all here to give to the world and not just take from it. You know, a neighbor said to me once, even if all you're bringing to community is a smile, that's amazing. Just don't be the person taking. So Rasta has given me two huge lessons on compassion for all and what is really real in this life. 
So thank you just so, so much, Rasta, for that and also for your time and sitting down with us. So this episode was a huge inspiration and I'm so, so excited to see what this episode does for you, what resonates, what hits home. Okay, so everybody, so much love to you all and enjoy this episode. Okay, Rasta, Dave. I think I thought about this last night of how to just start a conversation with you and and I thought the the best thing to do would be to drop into the um, 16, 17, 18, 19 year old myself, Um, you know, growing up in Palm Beach on the Gold Coast and I was in the Palm Beach board riders and I was surrounded by this like deep surf kind of culture and this kind of like, and this societal pressure and I was really struggling with myself at the time. And um, looking at you and how you started living your life or how you were living your life. In how, sp- how old are you now? I'm 35. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yep. So when I was at school, I think you guys were, how old are you now? Oh. Yeah, I'm 42. Yeah. So you were like, when I was younger, you know, I was hanging out with like the Dorringtons and stuff and you were the older crew above that. Yep. You know, so. Yep. Um, gotcha. Yeah. But I had that kind of societal pressure going on. And then I was looking at people like you and Xavier Rudd, like that music. And I was fighting within myself of allowing to be what I wanted to be. And then it was people like you guys that started showing me that that was okay, you know, to go on that path or follow myself. And then what was odd is like now, you know, 20 years later, I'm getting messages about that from younger people doing the same thing. And, um, like, I just realized, I was like, wow, like the inspiration that you had by just being your authentic self. And that's where I wanted to to start this podcast by first of all thank you for for inspiring me when i was younger but for two is to start with the younger you of how you became the man that you were like (laughs) like i know you're born in new zealand but you grew up on the gold coast so you had the same kind of culture that i grew up in but how did you break away how did you allow yourself to be who you were because in young surfing videos of you you're like meditating You know, and if I started meditating at that age, you know, around my friends, which I was, but I was doing it not around them because, you know, they'll tease me or pay me. I'll say, what are you doing? Why are you being different? Yeah. But it was like, you did it without, in the, in the public eye. Yeah. Uh, Well, an interesting, uh, thanks and thanks for your thanks. (laughs) And uh, a a, a thing that I have to uh, acknowledge with when I was a teenager is that I kind of lived I lived at Burley, but also my dad lived a little north of there and um, along just the straight-hander beach break section north of Burley, uh, like halfway to surface area and all that. And I was largely just a a kind of solo kid. I just sort of, for whatever reason, I um, maybe I was too selfish to surf with other people or I, I was too impatient to wait for friends when I wanted to go surfing and they weren't ready or something, but... Whatever it is, from a very early age, I was um, really happy on my own and surfing on my own and just sort of doing things on my own. And and it was partly because my dad did live at the other end of the coast. My mum lived at Burley and I was one week with one of them and one week with the other. And so it was really easy for me to just sort of be on my own. And what was happening at that time was that uh, my dad was up until I was, say... 12 13 years old he he was like a a cop special forces 
scrapper kind of guy from New Zealand that was, really? yeah, he got beat up really badly in these riots and stuff in New Zealand and had a lot of health, uh, physical and mental health issues because of a pretty tumultuous, pretty violent life up until around when I was 12, where it all came to a head and he had lots of different physical and mental health issues. And he went and saw a Chinese sort of herbalist healer guy and this guy really helped him and then really helped him change his attitude and his ways. And so all of a sudden my dad got super into uh, Zen Buddhism uh, and into Qigong and Tai Chi and also into healing modality. So he himself became uh, acupressure, acupuncturist, Chinese medicine, sports massage sort of guy and turned himself around from um, being someone who as he would say, would break bodies to being someone who would put them back together. Put them back together. And so he was a very dysfunctional guy. And then he started being more functional and very funny and uh, more peaceful and could catch himself before he went into a rage or, or, you know, became a kind of scary guy. And so I saw that change and it really inspired me and made me feel interested in some of those more esoteric arts, some of those um, more Eastern arts and Eastern approaches to health and well-being. And, uh, and so anyway, so that was the influence at home and that was my dad, you know, and like as a little boy, you look up to your dad if you have one, if you're fortunate enough to have one, good, bad or whatever, yeah. they, they do form a very informative position in your early yeah. years and so for me to see him go through that was really impactful uh, and then um, I was also just having to deal with him so I was living alone with him and he'd have after my parents split he had a few different partners that would come and go but a lot of the time he would have a physical or mental sort of uh, flare-up of some sort and I would look after him and I would become the one that was rational I would become the one that would change his you know dressings and wounds that he had on his body or I was the one that was far more in control of my emotional responses far more in control of the situation even though he was my dad and so, so I guess it just helped up. yeah it just helped me it just helped me uh, understand how to emotionally respond how to navigate things that are you know quite quick to mature you because there was just not really another choice I was just that was just my dad and he was in trouble and he needed help and I was there and that was just the way it went and so if you combine that with then the very good fortune of having a couple older mentors uh, one is um, still a great mate Rod Morgan he's a he was a lifeguard at the time he would take me out to bombies that break up and down this coast um, in certain swells and we would go surf those alone and be riding waves that you typically wouldn't think are around this stretch of Australia but are. And so that was always really good. So that was away from all of the Gold Coast sort of scene. And I found those experiences really special and meaningful mm. for me, which is just... Well, raw travel. Yeah, and just, just real powerful ocean away from cameras, away from any story. And then I also had another mentor, Dick Van Stralen, who was much, much older than me and was a shaper and a very open-minded, open-hearted kind of guy, very creative, super quirky, but really respected in the surfing culture. And so between those two guys, I had I had a pretty stable male uh, model role yeah. sort of world, even though my dad was this loose unit that was all over the shop. And so 
So anyway, so that's where it, it really came from for me to just feel like, oh, this is these are the things I'm into. I've got people that I can uh, relate to and surf with and hang out with and make boards with who also appreciate like deeply creative or, or kind of esoteric stuff, mm. more left field stuff. And so it was just always um, in my world, those sort of characters, those sort of thoughts and interests. And so I, w- I literally was just playing the game with sponsors and competitions so that I could have enough support to avoid getting an apprenticeship or a nine to five job. Yeah. And I want, and I would do as good as I could at the uh, every now and again with contests in order to, you know, grovel to get a ticket to Hawaii at the end of the year or or um, make it to another adventure or get to Indo and then stay there for months or whatever. And so, um, so what you're talking about about growing up on the Gold Coast in a different kind of culture, pretty straighty, 180 sport athleticism culture. I I just had a different. Yeah, little crew you had a subculture with you. Yeah, that, I just that you had could... very cool. Well, not even it was yeah. so small. It was literally just a, a couple of crew. Yeah, and it was just this, and that was enough for me. I wasn't. A, I'm still not a very social, um, socially motivated person. I'm really happy just quiet time on my own, and and just a couple friends to spend time with is plenty for me. So and it was just it was just like that as a kid. Mm. I had a couple mates I surfed with who were my same age, but in general, I was kind of running my own deal, and then hanging with these older guys. Do you ever wonder, like, if you didn't have those influences? Oh, 100%. And that's what you see all the time now when mm. you look at the division of generations and in terms of, you know, we put our old people in homes really soon or we have, you know, less living situations where you have a daily interaction with someone many years older than mm. you or if you're older many years younger than you and it's a really meaningful and it's a really needed part of being a human is having a uh, a multi-generational experience because yeah man they save you getting into so much trouble like well, trial I, was, and error they've done yeah, it yeah they've done it so you know, i remember that all the time with dick van he'd be like yeah you know someone offers you something at a party and it's synthetic or it's organic whatever if it's something that's going to alter you just be mindful that it's like fire. A little bit will keep you warm and a lot will burn you. Just don't fucking overdo it. Yeah. And, and to me, that was so crucial hearing that because he wasn't just saying, don't touch drugs, don't touch it wasn't, he, he wasn't the father he was, saying no. Yeah, and, was he, the, and he wasn't ex, the, an extremist. He was saying, he's saying, look, yeah. don't avoid everything, but don't bring it in so hot, so heavily that you get burnt by it. Just, mm. just be mellow with it. And and those things, like those sort of stimulants or altering substances, can really help you if you have respect with them. And so, anyway, there was many, many examples of those older guys sharing that um, in a way that I understood was. Um, from their direct experience, it wasn't just mm. them scared of something saying, "Don't touch that" or "Don't yeah. think like that." It not was, being the father, I, I had that. Great. I had that with the Palm Beach board riders, like the older guys, like yeah, taking me under the wing and being able to have conversations with them. Like, let's say, yeah, about drugs or about women or about alcohol, just about life. And it was conversations that I couldn't have with my parents. Mm. And now, what I'm finding now, it's like in my community, I'm stepping into that responsibility where the young teenagers in my neighbourhood. And now like, um, coming to my home all the time, they, I've got a little gym set up and they all want to work out and they just want to hang out. And I'm looking at how much they soak up anything that I do, Mm. you know, at that age. And I was like, and I was thinking the other day, like, wow, like this is, 
you know, my time to be responsible, to be that um, elder, to be that, you know, that voice of reason that the father can't be. And it's funny, um, one of the fathers bought, took me aside the other day just saying how much he appreciates me taking the kids out and everything because there's conversations he can't have with those kids. You know what I mean? That they're just not going to listen yep. to their father. Yep. And it's um, so important, like you're seeing through your life, like if you didn't have that, you know, influence or I like I didn't have like, you know, people in this world that choose to, you know, be their authentic self, like, you know, being that young 16 year old listening to Xavier, watching your surf films and saying like, oh, you know, I can go on that way. You know, like it's just, as I'm having this conversation with you, I'm realizing that importance throughout the generations to, you know, like to, um, well, to help our kids. Um, I think it comes down to trauma. Mm. Is like let them be themselves before they, you know, have to go through all mm. that trauma and re-traumatize, and that's the way to heal the world for me. You know, one of the ways. Mm. Yeah, um, and that's you know, and I have to say, and I've always said actually that I have no beef with um, surfing competitions and that whole branch of the surfing tree because, as a teenager, I couldn't help but see how many of my um, mates and crew I knew uh, at that time that were benefiting from having a focus mm. and you know even though it wasn't my cup of tea yeah. it's not how I pursue the surfing experience it was it's really meaningful meaningful for a lot of kids yeah. uh, that age and, and I think that's a really great thing and and actually a couple of years ago I interviewed a bunch of crew who were saying that that, that was the reason they would go do contests was mostly because it was a way to feel like you're part of a community mm. and it was a way to give you a little goal every now and again, something to aim for. Yeah. And, and that's Which great when you've got, yeah, when you've got a yeah. schizzy teenage brain and yeah. shit loads of energy, that's yeah. the kind of thing you need. Yeah. Like there's no wrong or right, but what it is for you, it's like your path and like what feels right for yeah. you to go on that. Yeah. So when, you know, you started doing these trips when you're younger, you, let's say you, you know, in the mentor wise and I'm pretty sure I know there's that clip with um, Blue Horizon when you're meditating before um, you go to Bali for the titles. But are you ever on these trips? Were you ever on these trips when you were younger and say like meditating on a boat in front of Parco and all those boys, that culture that didn't, how did they receive, how did they receive you? Uh, and, and no, how, no, no, see at that stage I was, um, I was super into partying as well and yeah. and all of it. And that was the thing that probably made uh, me uh, acceptable to a degree in those circles. Was mm. I, I wasn't, and this is, comes from Dick Van Stralen's influence mostly because yeah. he, like I said before, he, was, he wasn't saying, don't touch anything and don't do this and don't do that. He was saying, look, you know, a joint here and a beer there, all that, all that sort of stuff. It's just like fire. Just don't have too much. It'll, yeah. it'll burn you if you do. And a little keep you warm. And so I'd be on trips and I'd, we'd have a, a night on the beer and whatever. And then you'd surf all day the next day. And then I'd say no, and I wouldn't have any. And then for a while, in my early twenties, I got pretty fundamentalist and I was like full vegan, no sugar, no alcohol, nothing. And I was really into that. And, uh, um, but still able to, uh, like be in a party environment mm. and having fun and open and loose and communicative. Cause yeah. you know, like a lot of people, especially blokes can't start speaking honestly and openly with, with each other until they have a couple beers, a yeah. couple of lip looseners. 
right? And I was never like that. I'm just not like that. I can instantly start talking about fuck whatever. I don't, it doesn't phase me. Um, so I'd be right next to crew straight as who are telling, telling you their life story and how much they love you and everything. And I would be exactly the same, but I'd be straight mm. and clear and remember every word the next morning and feel great the next morning. And not judgmental because, fuck, maybe next week I will get on the sip and I'll have a big bender and that's all good too. I just wasn't in the mindset of doing that all the time or needing to do that to feel open and honest with others and myself. And so I think on all those sort of trips where I'd be with other crew and you might think, oh, there would have been some tension or a bit of ostracized experience or something where I wouldn't click with those guys it was never like that because yeah. I was never I just didn't feel judgmental mm. and so then I wasn't really judged and I just didn't ever try and get on the st- kind of vegan pedestal which can really happen with a yeah. lot of vegan attitudes over time you get you start thinking that your trip is the trip yeah. and others should do the same um, and I, I just didn't have those influences, so I just wasn't thinking that way. It's because you're being your authentic self. Uh, one thing I think I learned when I was older was um, to be able to say to people, oh, that's okay, you're doing that, but I'm doing this, and that's fine, and you keep that love and respect <laughs> there because yeah. we always aspire to be like the person that just is them, just their full expression of themselves. Mm. When, when you started becoming um, an activist, this is where... Um, where for me, it gets really interesting in your in your life. Is where was the moment that you decided to start having a voice with stuff you believed in? So this again. So this is the thing about making yourself av- available to younger crew when you start getting long in the tooth and grey of hair, like I now am, <laughs> and you will be soon. Is is that I had another mentor as a young teenager, and he was also this. He was available to Dean Morrison and Joel. Um, Parco and his name is Dennis Callanan amazing man and he would help run um, like youth suicide prevention surf days and uh, he helped run the organization Sand Surfers Against Nature's Destruction which would do these big surf events that were all centered around ecological issues and he was just an amazing guy anyway he he would always loop us in with events or ways that we could um make surfing meaningful or give back in some way uh, even as teenagers so I remember being looped into a youth suicide prevention uh, campaign that was happening like when I was 16 17 so I'm right I was right in that bracket of kids who were self-harming and and taking their lives Mm. and I, I just spoke at a few events that he put on as one of those kids talking about what could be helpful for us uh, of, of that age what sort of um, helplines you could call or mentor groups or places you could go to if you if your home life was shit and you needed help and anyway just that experience was really uh, impactful for me I just felt I felt good when I did that yeah. and I felt like I was useful because you know to be straight like surfing is a very personal thing it's your a very personal um type of nature worship that's how I look at it and and being able to then use that for uh, you know the benefit of something other than yourself is a pretty rad experience especially as a young kid so so anyway it really started from that and then when um, when I got to say like 20 21 years old and I'd gone back to Indo every year for since I was 15 
and seen and like places like the Philippines and seen areas where there was plenty of reef alive and fish available uh, and that were no longer there anymore because of dynamite fishing or uh, mm. were no longer there because of bottom trawling industrial scale fishing um, or tourist development or whatever just seeing these things change and going fuck this is a diminishment this is not making the world better this yeah. is not making these places better and I just it just um kind of impacted me and so I always liked the idea of talking and hanging with locals wherever I went asking them what their story is how their place is how's life here because you know you go to a remote part of Indo and you think you're in paradise but then you talk to the locals and they're like nah man we're fucking struggling everyone's crook because of dysentery malaria whatever issues our fishing is fucked because the industrial fleets have just come and taken everything and and for me that was it was just really impactful. It was just like, oh, how do I ignore that and just go out and go surfing all day and then have beers again that night and pretend like no, and that's happening. And just turn that off, yeah. Yeah, so, so really that then sparked in me this real interest and curiosity. And also it was the same time where SurfAid, Dr. Dave Jenkins had just started SurfAid in the MentorWise in response to those experience, same kind of experiences. Mm. And I saw that as a really honorable, admirable thing that he was doing. And then because I wasn't among the surfing culture, I wasn't in the surf industry, like I would do trips and stuff, but then I was never hanging with people in that world. I was always hanging with people in this region who were authors or musicians or artists or activists in different ways um, or, you know, forestry people or like just amazing, interesting people. And uh, around that time, so this is early 2000s, uh, I met some crew who were friends with Paul Watson from the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, yeah. Captain Paul, who also started Greenpeace, co-started Greenpeace way back in the day in response to you know, industrial scale ecological um, collapse around the world. And I got an opportunity to sit with him and do what we're doing now, basically interview him. And what I wanted to do was interview him and then put that interview in all of the surf mags around the world to be like, hey, there's this dude who's ramming and sinking poachers and illegal fishers' boats because none of our governing bodies in, around the world are doing it. And he's a fucking legend and he's the gnarliest storyteller you'll ever meet and he's, he's just and an he's incredible guy and he's going for it and we need to back him up. And anyone I spoke to in the surfing world had never heard of him and a few older crew had from the early 90s, like Jerry Lopez, a couple of crew had met him, but he, no one knew of Sea Shepherd, right? And so I was like, this, this is not cool. We, we have to be fully shoulder to shoulder with him and his efforts and perhaps start doing our own kind of activism like that because mm. let's face it, surfers aren't the most academic or bureaucratic people. We're, yeah. we're, we're more physical creatures and so after talking with Captain Paul, I was like, what do I do? What can I do? And he's like, just mobilize your community, who, who you um, feel uh, like you belong with, what skills you all have, just use them in whatever way you can and just start, just do something and you'll feel it. You'll feel a momentum build. You'll learn, you'll fuck it up. You'll learn again and just keep doing it. That's all he's done for decades. And so, after that conversation, I was just so inspired and I put the conversation out through all the surf channels of stuff at that time, which was, it wasn't really internet time. So it was 
just all through print media and a bunch of people came back to me really excited about that and just saying hey look if you ever want to do anything we'll we'll back you up and I'll come I'll meet you somewhere if you put something together and like wow, basically bro. it was that I was like cuz I I put the call out I'm like look this is what the most experienced leading edge non-violent but very confrontational but non-violent um activist for the oceans has told me to do I'm willing to do and I just would I'd love to know if anyone else is keen and so I started getting people coming back with supportive sort of responses to that and one guy in this area who was here two days ago is still a great friend Howie Cook he's an amazing artist and he's just a like high energy amazing guy and he said look have you seen what's happening in Japan and that along the coast where there's lots of surfers there have you seen that there's 22,000 plus dolphins and whales being uh, killed very inhumanely along that coastline and uh, and I was like nope no idea I've been to Japan every year at that stage for like four or five years in a row never heard of it and uh, and so anyway all of a sudden I spoke with some crew in Japan about it some local surfers I was like oh do you know what's happening in that prefecture Wakayama prefecture there with these dolphin drives and these dolphin and whale kills and they were like oh we've we hear whispers but we don't get involved because the fishing community is pretty intense pretty intense and pretty scary and it's pretty ruthless world and they're just like oh and it's and it's not a very confrontational culture anyway so just sort of kept it at bay and then i was like oh have you also heard how like the meat that's taken from these animals the animals that are killed not sold off for sea world and everything but the animals that are killed is being fed to kids and it's full of mercury and other heavy metals and toxins and how it's super dangerous to do that and they were all like, nope, we had no idea. And so, When you were hearing this, was it just rumor or could you find facts? So, yeah, so this was coming from some of the uh, Sea Shepherd crew yeah. who had been there. One of, uh, I think, Captain Paul's ex-wife had gone and done some stuff, some work there in the cove trying to expose it. And then most of my information came from the Ocean Pres- Preservation Society, which is Louis Sahoyas, and he's the guy who made the cove. So as they were building that documentary in the years leading up to when it came out, they were there um, covertly for years, right? So they were slipping in and out of there without being detected because they were filming everything without Mm. the crew knowing so they could get the real story. And they had done shitloads of research on all the sample meat that's in supermarkets and the sample meat in the school um, lunch program. So what what was available to me a little surf punk, spoilt surf punk from the east coast of Australia was not available to anyone in Japan. And I was just thinking, this mm. doesn't feel right. Why are my surfing friends, why is the surfing community in Japan completely in the dark about what's happening in their own bays and yeah. coastal areas? Like right, I'm talking like one beach over from popular beaches. I'm like, why why am I aware of this and they're not and so I instantly I was hearing Paul's voice in my head I'm like do what you can I'm like all right well for whatever reason I was a popular surfer in Japan at the time I'd had multiple magazine covers and stuff there and they loved this whole groovy thing of writing strange boards and just being with creative people and and, and being sort of footloose and free as opposed to the very jock sporty spice sort of 
other side of surfing yeah. and so so i was like well i've got the ear of coastal culture in japan i've got the attention of all these surf magazines like every month like what am i going to do with that i've got things in the surf shops like futures fins with my names attached to it or billabong stuff with my name attached to them like I need to get this information through those channels to these people so they can make an informed choice about whether it's right yeah. or not like, that did that's you, happening. Did you feel responsible? Yeah, it was just an opportunity. Yeah. It was it was more just an opportunity. I was like, oh, this here's the problem. The problem is that there's no discussion. There's nothing transparent about this issue, mm. which is harming people, harming ecology, and super inhumane. And here I am with the ability to Spread be a loudspeaker on those things. And I'm like, well, it's going to be detrimental to me because probably I'll get blacklisted from the surf community in Japan or I'll be, you know, ostracized. And they would be like, oh, well, you're, you're done. We're not going to pay you any attention anymore and blah, blah, blah. And did that scare you? And so, no, because I was like, fuck, yeah. this is, this is, what's this is that? more important. Yeah. What's, what's that compared to being a young kid in japan and you unknowingly eating mercury. fucking mercury every day of your developing life mm. at school and so it's just like you know seriously there's an option here to do something and so that's where that all started i was like all right well here's my opportunity fantastic i can slip things in so futures to their awesome credit were like yeah let's do something and so i got um this keel fin that was being made we were making together that goes on all the traditional deep swallowtail fishes um which was i don't know selling like hot cakes i was like all right let's put a sea shepherd logo on it and then the dollars from that can go to sea shepherd and specifically to their campaigns that affect areas where there's surfers so we're tying in sea shepherd and we're supporting and we're, them and bringing and, the surf community yeah, in we're, we're we're educating the surfing world on this work that sea shepherd's doing because no one knew them and they're like, cool, let's do it. I'm like, fuck, that was awesome. And I'm like, oh, what about if we, if we put on the sleeve of the fin bag that fins come in, like a, a uh, insert with pictures of the cove and the red blood water and the inhumane practices that are there. And we put the stats of the mercury in the meat and we like make those, these little informational cards, right? And they're like, and they're like yep, let's do it. And fucking, it was so amazing. And so anyway, all of a sudden in surf shops in Japan, there's this thing sitting there and the, and it's telling them what's up. And uh, and so that was happening. Was, was Futures scared at all um, for having nah, any backlash? They, just saw excited. It, they saw yeah. it. They were just like, we'll just back you, mate. It's all good. Like, Because, yeah. you know, you see that imagery and you realize mm. that's not humans doing the best we can do. Like, exactly. Traditional kills where they, they would never take a female or a young. Mm. that is something completely different. It's a different world. It's a yeah. completely different thing. And you're feeding the local community. It's non-toxic meat. Um, it's very honorable. And I really have still to this day a deep respect for Japanese mm. culture and the ritual, um, the ritualistic nature, the ceremonial nature of mm. Japanese culture is really significant. And I love it. It has one of the longest, if not the longest environmental um, history in the world. Shozo mm. Tanaka was one of the first environmentalists on the planet who was dealing with industrial waste yeah. in a local river in Japan like fucking 200 mm. years ago. Mm. It's a deeply, deeply beautiful culture mm. that I was fully acknowledging when we were doing this. So I wasn't in any way 
wanting to um, judge the culture there or disrespect in any it. way yeah. at all. It was just let's get these lines of communication open and then let's expose what's happening here in this in these little pockets mm. and, and make your call then. Then decide how we all feel about it. But you can't mm. just keep pretending it's not happening one yeah. bay over from where we're all surfing. Because that, that imagery too, like in the movie The Cove at the end of it, I watched it yesterday. Um, I rewatched it and, and I cried. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was so heavy. To. And then I um I showed my, my partner last night. I was like, oh, you gotta you got to watch what you know what what happens here and and she started watching it straight away she's like i can't i can't i can't and she started crying and had and we had to turn it off it was yeah. just and that there is telling the human within us that it's wrong you know if our reaction you know you know quivers and like you know gets brought to tears so easily yeah. but it is yeah it's 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 quite beautiful and amazing you having um using what you can do to actually get that imagery out there because like you said it's like and the movie shows no one just knew there's literally yeah, it was just a different time too there wasn't as much transparency in the world there wasn't a phone with a camera with an immediate internet upload capability in the mm. world like we just didn't live in the same world right there's way more transparency in the world now than there was then this is nearly 20 years ago it's like 15 18 years ago and so like for example when we got to shoot imagery and everything we then had to get back to a secret hotel and do these really long uplink freaking things getting the imagery onto the net but also had to do many physical copies so that if anything was confiscated you had a copy you couldn't just whack it straight up on the internet and know that it would exist there safely mm. it's just a different time so part of what we were doing was or mostly what the ops crew were doing who were the crew making the cove was just shining a light on the the truth of how the kills and the drives were happening because you know the representation of it was oh this is a cultural thing so the mm. response from the fishing industry in japan was oh this is a cultural thing how dare you foreigners mm. come here and judge us you know this is what kept us alive after world war Two when there was all these restrictions on what meat we were having like that that was the the general response uh, yeah. to any the discussion or, con, or yeah or criticism of these these drives these kills and so um, so it was really important for me that it never the conversations never descended into that kind of us and them discussion and so what I wanted to do was going there I was thinking about the ceremonial nature of the culture there I was thinking what in surfing do we have that is ceremonial and then i was like fuck we have this thing we do when a surfer dies we form a circle and i was like the ultimate surfer is the dolphin like you live where we live you see the shit they do on the waves around here and it's unbelievable i'm like well that's pretty valid so if anyone questioned me over there i i really do feel like what we could do is we could paddle out into the cove and hopefully there's not a drive happening and you know it's not violent and all of that but if it is happening that's probably gonna blow the lid on the whole story mm. and send it around the world but either way we're gonna go there we're gonna have one of these circles and it'll be an acknowledgement of the thousands and thousands and thousands of dolphins and smaller whales that have been very inhumanely killed there and 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 so that was 
where I was like, oh, that's our in, that's, that's the thing, that's how we're going to do this and that's how I'm going to be able to communicate my respect for Japanese culture because it's real and I love the ceremonial nature of the culture there. And so uh, when we got there and I managed to wrangle, I just told people pretty covertly, I said I was going to have an event in Japan um, be willing to maybe get thrown in jail, um, but we're not doing anything mm-hmm. violent. And people just signed up and said, "Yep, I'm coming." And so we had like 30 plus people just meet there. And then were you on the hot list already from uh, the no, fans no, and exposed? No, like- uh, kind of. So I was getting heat from the, some of the Billabong people in Japan, uh, but the rest of the crew in Billabong uh, throughout the world were supportive and um but he was freaking out in japan rightfully so and he he was like don't do this don't do this don't do this and anyway i was just saying all these things i'm saying to you about what we're doing don't worry nothing none of it's confrontational or violent but i was associated with sea shepherd in sea shepherd in japan was deemed eco-terrorists because of the stuff they would do to poachers and illegal fishes and stuff around the world and so they are actually so the, a word went out around where the cove is that we, I was there to blow up their boats in the harbour that I was coming to destroy all so their So someone started harbor. that rumour? Yeah, that. so I think it just some, somehow someone who wasn't really a surfer heard the Sea Shepherd people around. Then some surfers who were there heard those rumours and then re- and realised it was they were about me. And they're like, ah, oh, this doesn't add up. Like, I don't think he's that kind of guy. And so they were like, ah, oh, the fishos are just fucking neurotic and paranoid and they've got some story in their head. Plus, if they sell a certain but, story to the authorities. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so, so anyway, I got there and shit was hitting the fan and there was like, it was, uh, we got word from some, from some local friends that there was going to be a big brawl. And if I rocked up there, even some of the surfers there, we were going to just get beat up and sent out of town because of the, this threat of um, blowing shit up and... And so, thankfully, one of the older sort of head surfers of the area got a hold of us while we were there. Because I was there for quite a few weeks before we actually rocked up to the to Taiji to do the paddle out. And the fishermen were so paranoid, they didn't do any drives the whole time. They thought if they started their boats up, that that would be the signal and we would blow everything up. And so, it was actually quite effective, us floating around the country at the time. They didn't know where we were and uh it slowed the the season down for them were you starting to get nervous but were you starting to get nervous that these fishermen yeah well when i heard those reports i was like oh shit i'm gonna have to try and put this fire out somehow and then we got a word from an older local to come and meet and tell him what it was we're actually gonna do because he's like it doesn't add up like this doesn't sound like you and in general the fishermen are kind of considered crazy like Mm. cowboys like just crazy kind of crew and so anyway um, it was really great we got to um i slipped away from all the big crew that i had and uh just three of us met with this old fella and he pulled out a huge bottle of sake and all these crazy herbs and roots in it and stuff and at midnight we sat down and we just sipped and drank and talked until sunrise about it all and i showed him i had all these printouts of all the data we had about the toxicity level in the meats and all this stuff and the and the reality of the drives being to capture dolphins 
to sell them on because a live dolphin was worth like a hundred grand, a dead dolphin. So the meat from a dolphin is worth 900 to thousand dollars. So they were actually doing the drives mostly to capture them and sell them on around the world to hotels and theme parks. So he was also just like, fuck, you know, that is not traditional. This is not our cultural practice. What they do is not cool. And I was just like, dude, when we're here to do this paddle out and we're here to just do it peacefully and to hopefully shine a light that's more about having a conversation than it is pointing a finger and I, I trust me that's all it is and then in the end he's just like okay just go and i'll call off the crew that i know that will want to scrap you guys and we'll just just go and he just sort of did that brushed his hands and and at sunrise i left and then uh and already though i had a bus of all the crew coming and uh and then um we managed to meet at the cove and uh there's bbc and all these other film crews and people there and uh we did a paddle out and the cops all came and was we it said, was attention was yeah it? heaps of attention yeah but it was all good it was all it was all peaceful and um uh i given everyone very strict instructions about their body language about communicating no one talking to anyone just keeping everything super super relaxed and we were able to explain that it was a peaceful ceremony and then we left and we went back to a big city a few hours away and but we kept a few crew there hidden and um so straight away once we left the fishermen were like oh finally they're fucking out of here and so they went out in their boats and that's when they got uh, i think it was between 20 and 30 dolphins and and small whales and brought them into the cove and they kill a few and cut a few up and then all the others stay so that's like you know there's lots of different animals that do that where if you hurt one then the whole pack stays um, but so that's their technique there and so the bay fills with blood there's animals sort of struggling and in the corner and the rest all stay there to support mm. them and that's how you keep them there there's there's two lines of nets to keep them in the, so the cove the dolphins actually stay with their social yeah, yeah. nature to support yeah yeah they all all cetaceans all dolphins whales and porpoises they all do the same thing so oh so they're all there and we got back to the city and we're like we're putting out the getting the images and all the text and everything ready to send out to the world and and I was like, you know, that's good. It's okay. We did all right. And then the crew were like, they've fucking done a drive. They've got the an animals are in the in the cove. And so I just quickly assembled uh, five five of us. And then Louis and the OPS crew, with their all their amazing camera hidden cameras and all that sort of stuff, um, got ready. And then at midnight, we jumped back in the vehicles drove to the spot hid in the, um the bush area in the vehicles for a while till hey, sunrise are you scared like if you get caught yeah, it was in super nerve-wracking super nerve-wracking um but it was just mm. like okay this is what we're really here for like if we get this now this is what's gonna change this it'll mm. be the tipping point and so so that was at sunrise and then our crew in the bush there just called they're like yep the fishermen are in the cove they're getting to work and so we just said all right here we come and so that's when we rocked up in the van. We're already ready to jump in the water. And uh, I had like a fucking classic, like before GoPros, I had like this little lipstick camera, spy camera thing on my head and a, a housing on my back and, and all of that. And then we jump in the water and we, and we paddle out. And a couple of the crew, you know, like 
movie star ladies and stuff and not the strongest paddlers but they're just so brave and so up for it and they're just like that's what we're here for and really admirable and so we, we end up getting over the first line of fishing nets or not really fishing nets but just you know entrapment nets could they see you coming did they yeah know? once we it? got over that and we're in their zone that the, the boats um turned and came towards us and then you could smell all the blood in the water oh, it was no. a mineral mineral rich smell and it was all red and then the um the crew rock up and their boats and they turn around and then start reversing at us with the props <gasps> like out of the water in the water out of the water in the water and trying to freak us out just screaming at us and i had my camera on them from my head so i was like this far away and uh it was just like the more you do the worse this will be for you guys you know knowing that they were being filmed and then from the cliffs and everything and then uh they started get they got a pole out and they're hitting us on the legs with the pole and trying to tip us and get us out of there and then and then all of a sudden they look to shore and they see there's the bbc news teams filming them and they like freak out and they look up and this, there's no drones really back then, but there was a drone, like an early days drone, which like eight propellers on it, just <laughs> coming down from above. And they're like, fuck. And, uh, and in the boat, there was two older guys who were really angry and one younger guy. And we just locked eyes and he wasn't doing anything. He was just looking and he, you could it was just this really interesting moment where I could tell he was he didn't want to be doing what they were doing and he was just mm. there doing it and he just had this look and i don't know maybe i read too much into it but i just saw it and i was like okay this we'll see how things go but it might just take these two old guys who are probably so poisoned by the mercury in the meat that they eat and mm. the practice of being in that blood all the time they're so probably neuro neurologically damaged that they're just kind of out of their minds and they're doing this, they're doing these drives. And there's a young guy there who kind of knows better that it doesn't feel right. And I just was looking going, it's probably going to take those old guys getting too old to do this and falling off the perch for this practice to stop. Yeah. And the younger crew, because everywhere we went, if I spoke with people, everyone under 40 was super against it mm. and wasn't backing it. And it was always this discussion that it was the older generation just need to die for the practice to die. <laughs> just need to die. Pretty yeah. much. But yeah. For it to just... Because mm, they're so ingrained in their yeah, cult. Yeah. Just entrenched. And, yeah. But it's also because there's trauma there. And, and that's mm. another thing why you have to stay so human with this is because they were kids who lived with family who or were kids during the Second World War. Yeah. When they were bombed, nuclear weapons were used on japan and the trauma of that is something no one else on the planet has lived through and it's fucked up mm. and super deep and really gnarly beyond what anyone else knows and so so they're carrying that and so of course there's this thing of like who are you anyone from anywhere else mm. to come and tell us now that we're all, we're not doing something uh, that you approve of you know yeah. so it's just a different there's just very different world views in one boat mm, and so that was really that was really impactful moment for me and and, uh, and that disconnection through their own trauma as well yep just uh, just a lot there's just mm. a lot in it it's not a simple thing and so but that's the world we live in we we all mm. try at this point in time it's becoming very obvious how easy it is to construct a conspiracy theory on your mind that's very simply uh baddies versus goodies 
story yeah in order for you to deal with the complex nature of the world yeah this world is not simple it is not a black and white forest we're sitting here listening to looking at and smelling there are so many mm-hmm. colors there are so many sounds there are so many scents here and that's the world we live in we don't live in a goodies versus baddies world mm. an illuminati and a uh, a woke fucking world it's not that no. kind of world and i understand when we think like that because it's a coping mechanism it helps us cope with the immensity of something mm. to simplify it but it is not that simple and so that experience being there was so clearly illustrating that because it's like Wow. You, you might want to go, oh, these guys are baddies. They're doing a terrible thing. They're fucking maiming little mm. creatures and then they're feeding it to their children and it's toxic. Yeah. Like, that's some dark shit. But, and it's real easy to think goodies and baddies. Yeah. But in their but mind... But that's not the world yeah. that it is. And so being there and experiencing that and realizing, oh, this kid's doing this because he's, he's either got a family obligation to or he's got no other options for work... And these old guys are doing it because they've come from this gnarly trauma of World War Two, and uh, and oppression upon Japan, and their only option as fishermen in a world that's losing its fish are to capture these cetaceans and sell them because they're worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm. It's just complex, and so so it was amazing to be there and to to do that and to do our very best to stay human and to keep conversations happening never have it a one-way street where it's like oh we know what the data is we know what's mm. really happening with You're these wrong, animals and right. this. it's not that mm. kind of story um and it was really hard to do that and that's why opportunities like this uh i really welcome because you can actually have a proper conversation and communication like mm. this right but if you're talking about a news article or a tiny little text thing that's going on a website or in a surf mag where you've only got a tiny little window to communicate in, it so easily descends into a good versus bad mm, type of us, you're wrong, perspective, right? Yeah. right? And so, so at that time, it mm. was really hard. And the Cove, you know, won all these awards. And, you know, it, it was... Oh, the week after that we were on news things all over the world it was everywhere the images of that and interviews we were doing and i was trying so hard to keep any press about it in this type of nature like this mm. keep keeping all of these um media opportunities uh inclusive rather than exclusive and making it so that we're all in this together and i've just got surfing friends over there that i want to help and I've got people in that community in the surfing world in Japan that I want, who I want aware of these issues and I want them to have the same access to information that I have. Um, but, it, but quite often, you know, media sensationalism would turn it into mm. a look at these inhumane things yeah. and look at these good people doing this. Look at these heroes going mm. into the water to protect these, you know, poor defenseless, uh, defenseless dolphins. And, and that always... Oh, pissed me off because it's like it's not that simple wow. it's just not that simple and as soon as you start doing that you, you it's over well like, you're re-traumatizing you yeah know? yeah exactly you just yeah this is the thing it's like you, yeah it's like it's just yeah. not that simple mm. and that's where our media mechanisms really fail us they're so limiting mm. and that's why i think the podcast thing is actually 
it's even in just the language, the pod language. That's more inclusive than it is, you know, of just like a mainstream thing. You just got this one line. And so I think it would have been great if we had this sort of uh, avenue back popular then. avenue back then to, to articulate things in the way they need to be articulated which is um, complex mm. you know not complicated you don't have to make it like this really complicated thing and it's all locked up it's just it's intricate it's complex and that's that's that keeping the open mind and also compassion it's it was funny I had a conversation yeah the other day that was kind of like on this and it was like um it was actually on the the feminine and masculine kind of topping and I was like well no one needs to pay because it's not gonna it doesn't help anything when put all responsibility on someone and they have to pay mm. it's just now we can just come from love and move forward mm. you know and this like this like need to be it's like you're wrong we're gonna make you pay mm. kind of thing for something that wasn't was maybe out of our control yep. or there's exactly that thing more complex and when i see people doing that all i see is people re-traumatizing mm. is making more trauma in the world mm. you know creating more hate you know more judgment mm. and um you know being able to take a step back and understand these issues you know understand the the greater things i was thinking about um the other day in like the 1950s like men in australia coming back from war and the trauma that they must have had when they came home to their loving wives, you know, and just yeah. the complexity of that situation. I was yeah. just thinking, and they're, the, and they're the dads that we talk about now who we're like, fuck, I wish they'd just talk more and open up a little bit, you know, like, exactly. Like pretty much all of our generation's dads are pretty, are pretty closed books. Like, there's not that much openness and willingness to talk. Mm. But that's for a good reason because they went through some heavy shit. If if they didn't go through Vietnam, Vietnam, all their friends did. And then before that, mm. what other war you want to pick? There's many of them. And that's been something I've tried, you know, worked hard to break by traveling around and, uh, and learning about myself. It's like, you know, I was really ingrained for me from a young age, you know, especially from my stepdad who is closed, who's not open to his emotions or open to like looking at himself. And, and it's not, that's just him. But, you know, it was very strict and like, you know, boys don't cry we don't feel emotions you don't do this you know you don't you know this is how to be a man and his construct of how to be a man what i've worked out is different to me mm. you know and it's like different to um and so it was really hard struggling with that too coming into my adult years because the the like that father figure mm. was you know it was like i had to fight within myself because i had a different trauma his trauma you know being pushed on me yep. you know it was um was i suppose suppressing my emotions mm you know mm. that's um yeah so it's you know it's everyone's trying to figure it out and i think mm. it's really nice when we just take it easy on ourselves and on each other yeah and especially in this point right now like none of us have lived through you know health freak out pandemic experiences or ecosystem collapse all around us so like we're all mm. in this new zone together and it's really easy to start pointing the finger at others and being like, you know, wishing they were a different way than they are. But, but literally none of us have been in a position like we're in right now. Yeah. And we're and all trying to figure yeah, it out. And that's the thing. And, you know, especially a few months ago when you're seeing that big divide happening and it was like really confusing me because it's just like, that was the thing. Everyone's <laughs> just figuring it out. Yeah. You know, and it, but it's as humanity, we can lose love so quickly. That's a, um, question I wanted to ask you, you know, Dave, you, you seem like, and you, and I can feel it with you, the love that you have in your heart. Has that always been there or have you, or has that just come the more you've grown into yourself? Um, well, 
It's a funny one. Human to human interaction is, uh, it's pretty limited. Like my life is, mm. is, uh, like anyone who lives in this area would probably see that like I kind of come in and out a bit. I don't really have a local surf spot that I surf religi- religiously every day. I don't have sort of social clique that I'm a part of. Uh, I kind of just pop in and out of the human world a fair bit. And so for me, you know, like you can sit here now and you can hear, especially with these headphones on, it's awesome when you point the mic away from my silly head and point it into the bush. Like you're just hearing birds and and whatever else is in this ecology and and for whatever reason that's just always been a huge part of my life is making uh, that balance between human and and other than human time a real uh, focus Mm. you know so like there's a lot of I can go long periods where I'm here on this land very fortunate to be here on this land you can slip through the forest here and eventually get to the beach and and it's a long pretty much empty beach and and i'll go for surfs and there's a resident pod of dolphins that live out there mm. that i'll see and there's some classic times where it's like i've had more time with them than humans in a whole day and uh and that happens a fair bit and and that really sustains me and so it makes me think of actually about this book i read a couple of years ago i think it was there's two there's one called introvert and one called quiet and they're both about sort of introvert extrovert dynamics and and uh i read it and they had at the start of it they uh they give you like this quiz to find out if you're more of an introvert or more of an extrovert and we all change sometimes we're super social sometimes we're super quiet but one of the questions was if you went to a barbecue or a party hang out with people um would you come home feeling lit up like energized or would you come home kind of feeling exhausted and and then the next question was, uh, are you sitting here reading this book right now instead of being at one of those parties? And it was exactly the situation. I was sitting, <laughs> I was sitting on the deck here, looking into the trees, and I'd I'd said no to a hangout with a bunch of friends and people that I love, and was just sitting quietly reading that book about being quiet. And uh, and I really realised and sort of accepted the fact that that's just my deal. Just at you. this point in time and that's where mm. that's just where i how i feel uh, really charged and full of energy and, and abundant and open and not um, overwhelmed or jaded like we just went to sydney for some stuff for my little boy's health and we were there for three days and two days in both lauren and i and he eventually too was was pretty tired from the experience and and so that's really what fills my cup mm. so like if we were hanging out in the big smoke somewhere you'd probably wouldn't have said what you just said you're like dude why are you so fucking grumpy and tired <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's because i just maybe i just get overwhelmed mm. and i just have more of an introvert nature mm. um and i but i do i love when there are uh, social um, moments happening that are really meaningful and have a purpose to them so if it is for some something like ecology or a social uh, issue where we can do better mm. and that by getting together we do better yeah then I'll turn up and I'll love that, but I wouldn't choose it. That's an mm. effort for me to do that is, is quite a drain. Uh, but when I do that, I, I enjoy it, mm. but I, I wouldn't really choose it. Is so it, I don't know. It's a pretty roundabout way to, to respond to what you said. But <laughs> It's kind of understanding it's your way to spread love in the world. This, this podcast for me, it's my way of connecting people to adventure 
which connects them to nature, which makes them want to protect it. Mm. You know, if you get people to go on a hike and, you know, look at these trees, hear those birds, smell those smells, you know, ground their feet on that earth, Mm. you know, they start falling in love with it. Mm. You know, so it's like, yeah, it's my way. I've I've recently, I was just showing Robin, the first episode came out today of a, like a four part YouTube series that we did of, I hitchhiked up the Queensland coast six months ago. Um, out to the Percy Islands and got dropped off on the islands and built a hut and lived on the island for, um, I spent five weeks there in that hut. I was, I was telling Robin it was full moon to full moon. I realized I, I lost track of time and I was sitting there one, um, one night in the full moon rose and I was like, wow, I sailed in here and got dropped off on a full moon. And about five days after that, I ended up leaving the island. But it was this connection where I was completely disconnected from society completely i was on australia's like some of the most remote islands off the coast here with no one Mm. and just me and i was just and i was telling robin just before that i was just um i was he goes he said what were you doing every day i said i was just diving i said i was just playing in the underwater world Mm. and all i had was nothing but nature and myself and yeah the first few days you know i was like oh what am i going to do you know and and after like five weeks i didn't even want to leave you know and then um, I, I ended up hitchhiking back. This boat came in with this young guy, James, and um, took us three days to get back to the Keppel Islands. And then my girlfriend came and met me. And the first thing we did was go out to Yapoon and we went out to see a band. And as soon as I went in, you know, that all that energy and those people, which I normally love and I do love, but I got social anxiety. You know, mm. I started that energy. I was shaking. I was like, whoa, mm. I'm not ready for this. But, um, but the thing, what it did, it's just like that love with nature. You know, I was just sitting there, I was just, just sit there. I was like, how often in your life do you just get to sit and just play with the sand? Mm. You know what I mean? And that, and that became like, I loved it. I enjoyed it. How often do you get to sit and enjoy every bit of food that you eat? Mm. You know what I mean? I'd catch a fish and I'd sit there and I'd spend, you know, all afternoon cooking it on the fire and then I'd sit there. And that's what I, that's the only thing I have to do. And I realized how in the now that I was, and also, and now that I've left there, I was like, oh my, the Keppel, I mean, the Percy Islands, that trip from the Keppels to sail out to the Percys mm. is the most, like, um, I just have just love for it, mm, you bet. know? I bet. That's amazing. I was actually, uh, I, that makes me want to ask you, I took a, a friend who's an amazing filmmaker, Damon Gamow, he's, um, he'd be fine with me mentioning his, his name. He's made 2040, the doco and, and that sugar film and bunch of other great stuff and anyway he uh, and his family live here with all of us and and I took him out on this little sailing these little sailing um, Hobie crafts a little while ago and we got sort of slammed by an unpredicted wind and getting blown out to sea and it yeah. all sort of and gear started breaking and it was a bit of a shocker and he's not a fully experienced sort of waterman sailor and and uh Anyway, we eventually limped back to shore and I didn't take any food or anything. I just said, you know, whatever, we can be hungry for a while. And and afterwards, um, he was just talking about how huge it was for him to then go back because he is largely in the human world. He's, he's mm. such an amazing workhorse for regenerating Australia and and socially and ecologically. And, and it meant a lot to him. So I was wondering, like, how, how do you then transfer something that was obviously very meaningful for you and a real teacher for you to, to other people. Like how do you pass that on? Through storytelling. Yeah. So it's, it's, fun. it's funny. One time I was on my way back from the Keppel Islands and I got the 1770 
and there was people everywhere with their boats. And I was, and I started getting frustrated. There were all these people just trying to get out on an adventure. And then I realized I was one of the people telling everyone to go out on an adventure. I always have a hard transition coming back into society. So, and I get stuck in between these two things of, of my responsibility, of my way, the only way that I can share love in the world is the way that I'm good at is storytelling, to share my experiences, you know, um, and through storytelling, inspire other people to, to go on their path or go to nature, which is like what I said before, to fall in love with it me and I'm wondering you probably would have the same thing in your past where it's like I can't sit down on the computer and do all that work and and that so it's like I try and meet it halfway mm. audio is good because I that's quick to edit and and then if we do like some footage I can pass that on to someone else or, or whatever to do but it's like um for me it's like I um I just I kind of feel it's my responsibility just to at least share something you know just to at least feel within myself what I felt and then pass that on you know it's not it's not right it's not wrong but it's just like what i found or the response that i keep getting when i have a moment or have an experience and i come back and i tell you know someone about how like in the now i was and how much that helped me be you know remind me to be my authentic self i had this moment when i was on the island and i did this hike there was a place called castle rock the highest part of the the percy islands and it took me about four hours to climb up there and I got up there and then I, um, I saw this ledge down off the rock and I climbed down on this overhanging ledge and I sat there and did some uh, meditation and some breath work there. And I started laughing to myself because the whole time I climbed up, I was just dancing and singing and like I was literally just expressing myself. And then I realized if anyone was around, I wouldn't have been doing that. And then I like started laughing about the insanity that I had that I questioned, like that if someone was around that I wouldn't be my authentic self, I wouldn't let myself express how I wanted to. And I started laughing about how much fun it was that I could just dance and just laugh and like enjoy nature. And then I, I just started thinking about the insanity, you know, the fact that I questioned that in, in the first place. And that was like one of those moments that I realized, okay, well, I just had that like epiphany in myself. That's something that it reminds me to be me, share that moment. And so through story, I shared that moment. I did a little video and I shared that and it, um, and it touched people, you know, and it was one thing I, I didn't do it for my own validation, but I felt it was my responsibility. Not saying it's right or wrong. It was just something that helped me be a better version of myself. And when I shared that other people could relate mm. if it hit the right ears, you know? Mm. So I don't know. I th- Mm. Yeah, I was, I was talking with, with uh, a couple of friends during all the flood times that we're, we're still living through now and uh, about just the, our direct experience with discomfort and convenience or lack of convenience and how, you know, the last, oh, what it was probably a year or so where if we've got older family members who, you know, dealing with some health issues, there is some, there's been a lot of sort of nerves and fear around getting sick, getting COVID mm. and putting that on top of already, you know, uh, elderly um, strains that your body might be going through and then discussing, oh, yeah, okay, what's our, relation- what's our relationship to fear like? You know, because a lot of people demonize fear and say fear is this terrible thing. You got to either choose love or fear mm. and which is, I get it. I get that point of view. It does feel to me like a, a um, 
an us and them mm. simplification of things, though. A, a pretty convenient sort of worldview, a black and white worldview, love or fear only. Um, but I actually was talking with some friends about this in relation to the floods and the, and how when we got our second flood, there was quite a lot of fear in the air around it because we just lived through the gnarliest flood of all time in this region. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we had another cluster of rain coming to the day a month later that was looking to just do a full repeat or perhaps even stronger and where we're sitting right now it was fully underwater in the second flood far higher than the first flood and in the lead up to that weather event that fear of what was coming was quite Mm. obvious in a lot of people people hadn't quite gotten over the first flood yet oh mate i had it yeah that that rain it wasn't stopping but it's but the thing Mm. that's interesting with with that that was why i was having these discussions with some friends and just asking for different points of view was uh what is your relationship um to fear like how Mm. how do you uh feel about feeling fear do you get angry with yourself and say oh come on fuck toughen up what have i got to be scared of i live in a first world country is that the story in your head um do you have another story that's just like not even actually a story you just get railroaded by it yeah do you just get overtaken by your fear and start like really freaking out and panicking Mm. um i can wait if you like that's okay it goes do you uh do you face the fear and and feel like tough and hard and you start flexing different muscles in your uh, body and also in your mental body uh, like what's your relationship to fear and and uh, we're just just talking about how valuable it is to be a surfer or someone who is climbing or hiking or living in this living world in ways that you can't fully control so you're putting yourself in pretty vulnerable situations Mm. more vulnerable than usual because let's face it we none of us really have our hands on the steering wheel at any time in our life but especially when we're surfing remotely or surfing waves of consequence or surfing sharky waters or whatever it is that makes you feel vulnerable Um, and i really felt like what we have available to us as surfers if we are putting ourselves in some of those more vulnerable lineups and surfing places and in surfing in ways where we're dealing with fear, we have an opportunity to have, I feel, a very healthy relationship with, with fear. fear and that it's, it's, it. yeah, it's, it's something that, it's something that actually is in us for a reason. It has a function as a human animal. It is a skill that we have that we can apply to situations. It is not something to demonize and say we have to overcome all fear and live a mm. fear-free life. From my point of view at this point in time, this is how I feel because mm. because during the, that flood time, I realized, oh, those of us who frequently go to that fear edge and feel it and become kind of friends with it, we're just responding to that mm. second flood with what was needed and what actions we needed to carry out in order to deal with that second flood. Mm. Um, and the story that was going on in our heads was almost non-existent. There wasn't really a story. There wasn't something in our head going, well, the story I'm telling myself is, fuck, this rain's going to get even heavier. 
oh, I just cleaned everything out. Mm. Everything's going to get washed away again. Oh, they're only getting mold poisoning. And oh, fuck, what is that family going to do around the corner? They just moved back in. And mm. like, that's a big story running in your head. And then the friends and those of us that I feel have uh, a relationship to fear that doesn't demonize it, but doesn't push it away mm. or, or unhealthily crave fear all the time like yeah. an adrenaline junkie style thing but um but are just friendly with it and, and kind with it, it was just were those yeah. those people of that um sort of quality in their in their nature were able to just jump back in a boat and go help people up at Korokai yeah. or were straight back in their four-wheel drive going to that remote place or crossing some nasty water to get to a family that had moved just back into their place or whatever they were able to jump really quickly without a second story, a second mm. narrative in their head, overwhelming them, and and also the opposite, they weren't sitting at home and just going, oh well, those poor people, um, I'm right here on the hill, so I'll just sit here and do nothing. I'm okay. Um, the, it felt like there was this really great opportunity that was um, seized by a lot of people in this area where crudists jumped up and yeah. just stepped up to helping each other and being kind to each other and being kind to themselves and just kind of just being fucking awesome people and looking after each other in a way that was just so admirable and so awesome mm. to see. And, uh, and I just, I just wanted to bring that up because yeah. I feel like, cause you're in this adventure world yeah, and you do things like that, which would scare the shit out of a lot of people mm. and probably scare the shit out of yourself at times. It makes me realize how valuable having people like yourself is for the broader yeah. community because you're kind of like an astronaut that reports back to others yeah, what it's, it's like to go to a, an outer edge or when, an inner when, edge when you're saying that is actually it was our community like our surfing community like it's just like we all became action men yeah it's like that tro my troopy that's <laughs> totally. parked in your driveway the amount of like things that towed out when the floods were happening yeah. it was just like i loaded it up with ropes climbing gear we had um Robin over here with Eden. Do you know yep. Eden Soul from yeah. Dead Kooks? They're yeah, out yeah. there hiking up, yeah. dropping supplies to people, setting up rope lines to people. And it was just like all the boys just suddenly just turned into action, man. Yeah. No one was sleeping. You know what I mean? We're all running off adrenaline and everyone was just going for it. Yep. And like that was the thing. We, the, Benny and I, my neighbor Benny and I, we got out at Crescent through the floods. We drove out on a low tide one night. I got the troopy out, got it up on Crescent Head Hill. We had the next set of rains coming. I got hold of National Parks. Um, they came around a big four. We, we at my house. We loaded up the car with chainsaws, ropes, climbing gear, um, just safety gear, everything. And then the, we used the um, National Park four-wheel drive to get out before the next floods wow. came, so we could get up here. This mm. is the in the first ones mm. when it first hit for the first. While well, Woodburn and Corakai was still under. Yep. And then we got up um, as Woodburn was receding, went to Woodburn, and we heard that the uh, this that one back road to Korokai just opened. Yep. And we got out there, and it was just, man, it was ground zero. And I was, yeah. I was telling you on the surf the other day, like it was um, heavy. And then we had some other mates come up from Sydney, who the lifeguards down there, they drove up to join us. And then mm. we're out on the farms in Korokai. And, you know, we just, we had fun with it. Mm. It was traumatizing. It was hard. It was, um, it was heartbreaking. Uh, but it was also like, we just came together and just, mm. and I was just watching all the boys, everyone was just stepping up. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And so everyone has a story like that and it's just 
been amazing and and part of a couple of discussions after that was about how because some people were talking about you know the failure of institutions during the floods you know like marine rescue and ses and the military and all of that and how slow they were to jump because they're these big cumbersome organizations and everything and how amazing it was that individuals and civilians were able to just mobilize instantly and and get things done and and so we're talking about how uh how actually like we your response to that is that oh we should form these little sort of surfing um, first response action groups up and down the coast to respond to mm. weather events and and uh, disasters and things like that because we all did so well like it was so yeah. many surfers who are uh, who are proficient in heavy water or turbulent water who are, yeah. feel confident to cross certain water and confident to say no you there's no way you're fucking crossing that creek right now or whatever that we ha- we have a lot of uh, resources like boats and everything else to be able to do this sort of thing but then in the next breath i was like nah the best thing for us to do is to stay these free floating cells yeah. of groups of friends because my last day in my boat was with eden actually we went out to korokai on the last day of the second flood and there was all these intersecting little friend groups that were just hooking up going oh you've got a boat or oh, you've got a really good forby let's do this and let's do that and you could just work so swiftly and effectively Mm. and there was no fear of responsibility no one's like oh don't go in that water then we're held responsible it was like oh we're we're going in that water and we're just getting to that person and and there's so many stories like that that were exactly what this area needed it was just like the Mm. best social change I think any of us have probably ever lived through where everyone was starting to be such dicks to each other before <laughs> yeah. that. Like seriously, yeah, yeah, like yeah. There's some stupid behavior happening. And, uh, and then it just was all dropped and it was, it was just a really amazing experience for, I think all of us. And I think to bring it back to why I asked you before, how you bring what you do back to people. I think what's important with things like what we all do, where we're filmmakers or we're doing podcasts mm. or you're surfing or you're making art or you're doing these things that, aren't really like essential services in the world like they're not it's not like you're building a home for a homeless person or we're we're not really doing these super yeah Mm. it's not super essential but but what we can do and that i think is really meaningful and can be impactful is report back from these edges to those of us who maybe are really working hard and don't have the time to perhaps uh go to a remote island for a big mm. chunk of time they've got a bunch of kids they got to look after or they teach or whatever it is um a, a thing we can do which makes life more meaningful is to is to help each other out with navigating these feelings and mm. these points of view and help each other out with what it is we've learnt that's really helped us over time and that's why for me the first thing i wanted to say when talking with you was that i had great mentors as a kid and that's where my good fortune in my life has really come from is the fact that others were just really kind to me as a kid and helped teach me things so that I didn't have to put my foot in the shit all the time and I could perhaps uh, move through life with a bit of ease and and if we can do that through something like this where some Mm. dad or mum plays this for their kid who wants to go climbing or hiking or surfing or do something adventurous or whatever and they might get something useful out of it, mm. then that's a great thing to be doing and, and a kind of an essential thing to be doing if we're going to keep the wheels turning, if we want to keep having yeah. these very fortunate lives. You can't really hold on to it 
and expect to have another opportunity mm. come a- along and grab it. You've got to like pass it on so your hands yeah, are open enough. The importance of storytelling, you know, yeah. it's that elder, it's that elder sitting down to the to the kids and telling that story, you know, that dream time yep. story about, you know, with all those metaphors. Yeah, you yeah, know? It's, it's crucial. It's, it's great. It's crucial. Um, Dave? Can I check the time before yeah, we continue I was, on I was just about in case? To, I was about to say it's uh, 2.30 for you, 2.30. Is it? No, it's not. It's, <laughs> it's 10 past 2, but at 2.30, you, at 2:30 yeah. um, you've got a... a Dentist. Two, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got your, um, and, you, and you've done your daily dad joke. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't actually. I didn't put it on air, so you did it then. That wasn't me. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Mate, uh, seriously, you know, thank you so much for your time and inviting me to your home and your beautiful property here and being in your, you know, in your energy and your presence and, you know, getting to learn from you and, and, and thank you again for inspiring me when I was younger. And oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Yeah. And thank, yeah. yeah, just thanks for being you, man. I really, really appreciate the time. And, uh, and I really, a lot, a lot of thanks to Pure Scott for bringing us together. You know, we, yeah. we both collaborate with them and they're, they're an amazing company. And actually I, after I talked to you, I sent Dave Pryor a message, um, just to thank him mm. from, for what he did to this, for this community, yeah. you know, from the, yeah, from the great. chat that we had. And that was really nice to touch base with him and yeah, have a, good. have a chat and, and just say, you know, thank you. Cause he's in a position where he can, yeah. You know, yeah, help totally. like that, you know? Yep, and does, yeah, really admirable. Mm. Yeah, so, so a big thank you to Pure Scott and um and thanks once again, Dave. Thank you, brother. Yeah, yeah. thanks, good fun. Okay guys, if you like this episode, please share it everywhere. Share it on your social media stories, tell your mates, tell your mum, even tell the random guy you're sitting next to on the bus. Okay, now while I have you here, I want to put out an expressions of interest. I've been playing around with a few different ideas to move forward on the next chapter in life. And I was thinking I would love to try give people the type of adventures I go on and the lessons that these adventures have given me. I've been bouncing around a few ideas such as like getting a yacht, sailing out to something like the Percy Islands, setting up a camp, hanging out, diving, breath work, sharing circles. You know, it could even be really good to do is like say teenage boys coming of age ceremony slash adventure exploration and try do it affordable i was even thinking about you know this this one has a cost but thinking about like you know doing an icelandic surf mountain trip because there is not many people i know well actually there is no one else i know other than the icelandic guys that know that place like i do so that's got a lot of logistics involved. But if you guys like any of these ideas, shoot me a message on Instagram, drop me an email, or even put a question on this Spotify. Just put your name on, and then next year when I'm looking at this stuff, I'll send you a message. Okay, guys, thanks very much. Don't forget to share this episode. See you next time. Just say. I do it like a double.